1 Corinthians chapter 1, and our attention will be given to verses 18 through 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren... How that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence." But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. I don't think I have to convince you this morning that there is a natural inclination for pastors, churches, and even church members to be great in the eyes of men. There is this common tempting thought that the church or ministry, which is big, beautiful, busy, and bursting in numbers, is naturally blessed of God. For some reason, we have this unbiblical backward belief that God is more impressed with that which we consider to be great, mighty, talented, educated, flashy, wealthy, beautiful, and charming, over and above that which is small, common, weak, despised, poor, and even considered to be foolish in the eyes of the world. If ever there was a time where Christians have been tempted to think this way, surely it is our day. With TV and radio programs and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and fancy websites connected to podcasts and YouTube channels that magnify various personalities and pastors and preachers and churches, whether we want to admit it out loud or not, we've become programmed to judge the godliness and the spiritual success of a church by its appearance to our eyes. 
And listen, I'm not merely talking about, quote, mega ministries. I'm talking about the average pastor, church, and Christian. We have this strange captivation to be something strong, something great, something mighty. We have this sinful propensity to boast in our talents and our abilities. We have this habitual inclination to say, look at that church. They have such a beautiful facility. Look at how many people flock to that pastor or that ministry. Look at how large and talented that choir is. Or bringing it a little closer to home, we say, look at this video of me singing to the Lord. Look at how many people we have witnessed to last week. Look at how many people we've led to the Lord. Look at how many people are attending our church. Look at our work. Look, 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 like, 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 retweet, 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 comment, comment, comment. We ooh and awe at the pastors with the big followings who have a TV program. These same pastors who've memorized their sermons, they use a teleprompter to help him speak. While we despise the young man faithfully pastoring a church of only 20 people in the backwoods who is godly but not as eloquent as the man with the teleprompter. We ooh and awe at the churches filled with the 200-member choir and we laugh at the lady who sings a cappella who can barely hold the tune. When people look for a church in our day, it's their natural tendency to assess its greatness by its looks, its size, its music, its coffee, and the personality of its leadership rather than its sincerity and its humble desire to love, obey, and fear God. We have this widely accepted fascination with wanting to be big, strong, and great, being attractive in the eyes of men. We think that numbers equals success, bigger is better, busyness equals godliness, and personal talent and outward beauty is naturally pleasing to God. And I want to show you this morning from the Bible that this way of thinking is not God's way of thinking. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, that God takes great delight in using that which is small, weak, and even foolish in the eyes of men to accomplish his purposes. Now, with this text as our foundation, In my first main point, I want to begin by having us consider the many examples in Scripture that demonstrate that what Paul is saying here is true. If you're taking notes this morning, notice with me first the reality of what Paul says. Paul says that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, Paul says that God chooses the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. 
Paul says that it pleases God to use things that are simple and despised as choice laborers in his kingdom. And by way of showing that what Paul says is so, I want us to think about the specific small, weak, and foolish things that God has used since the beginning of time to fulfill his holy will. Let's think about it by considering first the nation of Israel. What does God tell us about the choosing of Israel? Do we read in Scripture that God formed and fashioned the nation of Israel because they were naturally strong and mighty? Do we find that God set His love upon the nation because they were great in number? Is there any indication that God ordained that Israel would be a people through whom the Messiah would come because they were flawless? No, on the contrary. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 declares that God did not set His love upon Israel nor choose Israel because they were more in number than any other people. In fact, the Scriptures declare that they were the fewest of all the people on earth. And the Bible declares that God set His love upon Israel because He loved them. Now think about this. God chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God established His covenant with the nation of Israel not because they were perfectly upright and mighty. No, God chose to use them to put His power on display through a weak, despised, undeserving people. God delights to use weak, small, despised, and even foolish things. Now, within the history of God, using this weak, despised, and undeserving people, I want you to think about some specific people and some specific ways that God worked to bring about His purposes within this small nation. So let's begin with Moses, Israel's first shepherd. What do we know about Moses? Well, of all things, the one that God chose to preach truth to the nation of Israel and to approach the great and mighty Egyptian Pharaoh had a speech impediment. The Bible says that Moses was a man of slow speech. We might say that he had a speaking disability. Moses wasn't a powerful order who naturally captivated audiences with eloquent words. Yet nevertheless, God used Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt. And God used Moses to give us the first five books of our Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah. And then turning from the Pentateuch to Joshua and Judges, what do we find in the exploits of this small nation Israel? Well, we find that often it pleased God, even under gifted leaders, to use unnatural means to accomplish His purposes. So there were great, talented leaders, and when there was, God often used unnatural means so that that leader would not receive glory. Think about it. Under Joshua's leadership, 
God used a harlot by the name of Rahab to hide spies as they spied out the land. Under Joshua's leadership, God commanded this great warrior, Joshua, to secure a victory for Israel by having Israel walk around a city blowing trumpets. In the Judges, we find God calling weak, unknown, and imperfect people like Gideon and Samson. We find God choosing to call Gideon, who was from an undistinguished family. And we find Samson destroying the enemies of God with the jawbone of a donkey. And then turning to the kings of Israel. After the failed leadership of King Saul, we find that it pleased God to anoint David, the runt of Jesse's litter, to be Israel's next king. And how can we speak of God using weak, ordinary things to accomplish His purposes without speaking of David when he was a shepherd taking down the champion of the Philistines, Goliath, with his sling and stones? And do you know what book of the Old Testament most Christians treasure more than the others? The Psalms. Do you know what the Psalms are all about? They're about David, for the most part, being weak. David is running for his life. David is being persecuted. David is seeking after God during times of great discouragement. But this all goes to show that it pleases God to use the weak common and even foolish things to accomplish His will. And then turning our attention from Moses, from Joshua and the judges and the kings, we look at the prophets of Israel. And looking to the prophets of Israel, what do we find? In the prophets, we find that God called men who were despised, hated and seemingly unsuccessful in the eyes of the world. Think about Jeremiah, the one who wanted to quit. The one who said to God, I'm done. I don't want to preach this message of judgment anymore. In fact, it it would be better if I wasn't even born at all. Think of Elijah. The one we consider to be the mightiest prophet of Israel. There was a time in Elijah's life where he said, Lord, take my life from me. I'm done. We think of Isaiah saying, Lord, how long shall I preach to this people and they will not listen? (laughs) If you think the prophets were mega men with mega ministries, you better think again. Even in Jonah's life. We find a man filled with hatred toward those God wanted to save. God in His grace chose to save the sinful people of Nineveh through Jonah's disobedience and sour attitude. Talk about grace upon grace upon grace. Of all people that God would choose to use, would you choose Jonah? 
And then turning to the New Testament, the same theme continues. And zooming in on Jesus, our Savior, and specifically Jesus' birth, we find that God sovereignly chooses to be the one who chooses the weak things to confound the wise. Who is it that God chooses to be the human instrument of Christ's birth? Not a queen, not a princess, but Mary, an ordinary peasant woman living in Israel. And where was Jesus born through this ordinary peasant woman? Was he born in some great city like Rome? Was he born in some great palace in the best hospital that the nation could provide? No, Jesus was born in a small, humble village called Bethlehem. And when Jesus was born, he was placed where? In a manger. Are you beginning to see the theme? Continue with me. What do we read of Jesus' ministry? Well, for 30 years, he appeared to be an ordinary carpenter to others. But in the three years of ministry, we find that Jesus demonstrated his power and grace through those people who were outcasts of society. Think about it. In the miracles of Jesus, Jesus chose to confound the world by healing the blind, the deaf, the poor, the paralyzed, the demon-possessed, and even the despised and hated Gentiles. In one of his greatest miracles, Jesus fed thousands of people from a small lad who had a little lunch. Jesus rebuked the disciples and taught them great lessons that they needed to learn through a poor widow with two mites and through young children who were despised. And who was it out of the multitudes living in the world that Jesus chose to use as his disciples? Jesus chose common men, fishermen, tax collectors. He didn't choose men who were of the rabbinical schools. He didn't choose the Pharisees who were experts in the law. Jesus chose ordinary men to accomplish extraordinary things. Read all this through 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And then, as we look at Jesus' person and ministry further, we recognize that Jesus' person and ministry was not flashy. It was not appealing to the eye. In fact, Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus was despised and rejected of men. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus had no form or comeliness. He had no beauty or attractiveness that would naturally draw others to him. There was no halo about his head. There, there was no brilliance about his person that people would ooh and awe at. And then moving on from Christ's ministry to the churches that were planted in the Acts of the Apostles, what do we find? Are Paul's words true? 
Well, we find that it pleased God to use small, weak, and imperfect people to be a lighthouse for the gospel. Think of the churches that are described in Revelation. Do you remember their imperfections? Do you remember their smallness, their weaknesses? Do you remember how they were tempted to become distracted? And then think of the context of the Corinthian church, the church that Paul is emphasizing these truths to. If you were to accomplish your will through a people, would you naturally choose the Corinthian church? They would probably be on the back burner. And here's a church that's fighting and bickering. Here's a church that is given over to so many worldly things. And Paul comes along and says, for some reason, God has chosen you, Corinthian church, to be a light for Christ in the world. Now get with it and be the light God has chosen you to be. Now Paul's not excusing their sin, but he's seeking to encourage them to remember that God chooses that which is weak and imperfect and even seemingly foolish to confound the wise. There are saints who love the Lord within this church. Let's not get it twisted. Not every member among the church is carnal. Now, the church as a whole has some serious problems, but there are people who still are faithfully serving the Lord. They're upright. They need encouragement as they look around and see all these problems and they take it before the Lord and say, what do we do? Can God still use us in the midst of our mess? Paul is saying, yes. God can still work through a despised, weak, carnal people. And remember, we think of Paul, the one who's writing this letter to the church. Paul says that when he was among them, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, that he was with them, catch it, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So lest we think that the Apostle Paul was this great and mighty man who had it all together. Paul says he was with them in weakness, in fear, in trembling. And the next line says that his speech, his preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. And then taking this truth and applying it to us today, what is it that can be said of Calvary Baptist Church? How many Hebrew and Greek scholars have been among us over the years? How many New York best-selling authors have been here? How many millionaires? How many celebrities? How many world-renowned musicians? I can't think of one. But I can think of many people in our church who've come from broken homes. I can think of many people in our church who've had serious health problems. I can think of many people in our church who've provided for their family week by week just to get by. I can think of members even giving way to sin, members leaving the church membership over the dumbest things. 
I can think of deacons over the years who have gotten mad at the pastor and have resigned all at once. I can think of pastors who have been discouraged in the work of the Lord. So this means that what Paul says is true. God takes delight in using ordinary, weak, common, imperfect people to accomplish His will. And this also means that any goodness that has been accomplished has been accomplished because God is gracious. That's the only reason. Now a question for you. Why do you suppose God delights to use ordinary, weak, common, and imperfect people to accomplish His will? Well, the text tells us. God does it so that He alone might be glorified. This is point number two. Having considered the reality of what Paul says in our first point, I want you to notice the reason for what Paul says in our second point. Look over. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 28 through 31 again. The Bible says that God uses the base things of the world and things which are despised and things which are not. For what purpose? That no flesh should glory in His presence. And then Paul goes on and says, But of Him are ye... In Jesus Christ, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Now look over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Paul says, Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye have believed? Remember the party spirit? I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos. Paul comes along and says, why are you glorying in men? Who are we? We're just simply vessels and ministers that God has chosen to use. I have planted, Apollos came along and watered, but it's God who gave the increase so then, neither is he that planteth anything. Neither is he that watereth. But God that giveth the increase. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Are you catching it? It pleases God to use small, weak, common, imperfect vessels so that others might marvel at His grace, goodness, and power. God chooses to use small, weak, common, imperfect vessels so that men might look away from himself, his strength, his abilities, and say, it is God and God alone who gives the increase. See how Paul is hitting on our natural tendency to pat ourselves on the back. Now, understanding that this is so, let me highlight in our third and final point, 
the need to continually remember what Paul says. So we see the reality of what Paul says, not only in our text, but throughout the whole of Scripture. We see the reason why God chooses to do what Paul says. Now, by way of application, I want us to think about the need to remember what Paul says. Why did God put 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in the Bible for us? For what practical reason do we need this reminder? Well, I'm convinced that it's imperative to remember what Paul says for two reasons. First, to keep us from becoming discouraged and distracted. It's easy to become discouraged when we start looking around and we start thinking, who's going to be here in five years? I mean, let's, let's look at the lack of young people here. Let's consider the millennials who don't want any accountability, who don't want to commit themselves to anything, who are just, I'll come or I'll go when I feel like it. Sometimes we start thinking, who's going to be here? Who's going to take the baton? Or sometimes we start thinking, what are we? This small little desert church in the backside of the desert, what are we among so many? We need to remember that God does not need numbers to work. God does not need human strength and human wisdom to accomplish His purposes. You see, Paul took pleasure in his infirmities. Paul took pleasures in his reproaches, in his necessities, in his persecutions. For, he says, when he was weak, then he was strong. What is success? Success is faithfulness to God's work. Not numbers, not busyness, not so-called professions of faith. The Bible says the Lord can save by many or by few. Have we seen that? Tracing the scriptures? We know that theologically, but we need to remind ourselves of that practically. Week by week, we must not despise the day of small things. We need to remember that God uses small, weak, common, and imperfect people to keep ourselves from growing discouraged. And then second, we need to remember that God uses small, weak, common, and imperfect people to keep us from becoming big, strong, and wise in our own eyes. Calvary Baptist Church has been here for 60 years. Praise the Lord. All glory to Him. We're encouraged by that truth. But listen, we cannot let our past be the strength for our present. We must seek to stay small. And I'm not merely talking numerically, should the Lord want to bless in a great way. I'm saying that we need to stay humble. We need to stay dependent upon Him. 
we need to know something about our inability and our weakness. We must learn to lean on the power of God's Spirit, not our own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct thy paths. Listen, church, we must not give in to the desire to be something great in the eyes of men. Jeremiah 45, verse 5, And seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Seek them not. So why do we need this reminder of Paul, 1 Corinthians? First, to keep us from becoming discouraged and distracted in this day of mega ministries. And then second, to keep us from becoming big, strong, and wise in our own eyes. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So, in my conclusion, let me ask, are you here this morning questioning whether God can save you? Maybe you look at yourself in the mirror and you think, can God save me? I mean... I've ruined my past. I've given way to so many sinful, worldly practices. Can God save me? And the Word of God assures us that He can. And He will if you come to Him by faith through Christ. God can take your sinful, messy life and convert it for His purposes. Did he not do this with our author, Paul? For in Christ, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. God can give us a new start in him. Don't question him. Don't doubt him. Trust him. God uses small, weak, insignificant things for his honor and for his glory. And if God would save you, He's not saving you for you to put you on a pedestal. He's saving it to magnify His grace. So trust in Him if you're without Christ this morning. And then let me ask, are you here this morning questioning if God can use you in His work? Maybe you know the Lord savingly, but you say to yourself, what can God do with me? I've got this problem I'm timid, I'm shy, I grew up in a broken home, I'm not very educated. What can God do with me? Well, if you cast yourself on His grace and His power, He can do anything He wants with you. If God can use small Israel, if God can use weak people with disabilities like Moses, if God can use a small boy with a little lunch to feed thousands, he can use you however he decides to use. But it's on us to lean on his understanding, to stop trusting in ourselves, to stop looking at ourselves and limiting what God can do with us. Let the words of Paul encourage you. The Bible says God can do exceeding, abundantly, above that which we ask or think. Why? Because God's ways are not our ways. 
God's ways are higher than our ways. Zechariah 4, verse 6, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. Psalm 115, verse 1, Remember this, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Remember John and how he said he must increase. And what should we do? We decrease. The way up is down. Don't despise your weakness. Don't despise our little flock in the backside of the desert. See how God has used this place over the years. And see what God can do in your life. I like what one preacher said. He said, there is no such thing as a great man of God. Some of you have been associated with certain circles of Christianities that make much of the man of God. Some preachers step behind a pulpit and say, I'm the man of God. And we're naturally inclined to glory in men. But this preacher says, there is no such thing as a great man of God. There's only weak, pitiful, faithless men of a great and merciful God. And so it is with church. There's no such thing as a great church. There's only weak, pitiful, faithless churches of a great and merciful God. That's the perspective that we ought to have. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. 